0: Please do be seated. Well, we're doing a little series and the run up to Christmas on some of the psalms. And we come this morning to Psalm 95. If you'd like to find it in your Bibles, it's page 602. If you're a dialed in the World Anglican, you've probably sung it many, many times in the past under the guise of the Venite. It's a well known psalm, but it's a wonderful psalm. Psalm 95. And if I had a key verse. It will be, well, the end of verse 7, the beginning of verse 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I don't know if you know the story of a visiting preacher who preached his heart out and was standing at the back of church after the service, just greeting the congregation. They were a very polite congregation. They said, what a wonderful sermon. We Thank you so much for coming. You were so helpful. We've loved having you. Then one little old man walked past and said, it was far too long. Well, anyway, other people walked past, more compliments, and he was feeling quite good about his sermon. And then the same little old man walked past again. He said it was unbelievably boring. Well, he was a bit taken aback by this, but anyway, other people walked out again, very grateful, lots of comments, positive comments. And the man walked past for a third time. He said, I couldn't understand a word. Well, he was a bit taken about by this, and the vicar of the church asked afterwards and said, you know, did people enjoy it? Did he get a good reaction? Said, yes, yes, it was wonderful. People were very, very positive. Except for one man who kept making some rather strange comments. And the vicar said, oh, don't worry about him. He only repeats what he hears everybody else saying. <laughs> well, I'm sure that man was not the only one to have found church boring. When I was a kid, I have to confess, my parents took me along to church every other week, and I absolutely hated it. I hated the hymns, unless they were the harvest ones. I hated the sermons. I hated the fact that it took a whole hour. It was the slowest hour of the week. But what I particularly hated was chanting the psalms. And there was one psalm that we used to chant, if that's the right word, every week. Psalm 95, the psalm we're looking at this morning, the Venite. Why on earth were we always singing it? What made this psalm so special? Well, in fact, for nearly 2,000 years, Christians. Communities all over the world have been using this psalm as a call to worship. It's from the word "venite," Latin word for "O come." But why do we keep on singing it? Why? Well, as anyone anyway I became a real believer, I began to realize and appreciate the beauty and the importance of the psalms. What makes them so special? And I think it is for this reason: they are an extraordinary combination of God's revelation to us and our response to Him. The psalms you see as part of scripture speak to us about god about what he is like about what he's done they speak to us about our world and god's perspective on that world they reveal god to us but at the same time they speak not just to us but for us see when we read the psalms we often find they articulate exactly what we are feeling sometimes they express the joy of being a christian at other times they mirror our feelings of sadness or bewilderment or confusion when we're angry with God, we find that anger sometimes reflected in the Psalms. You see, the truth is that they are written by real people who go through just what we go through. So it's this special combination of speaking to us and speaking for us that makes the Psalms unique. They're a combination of revelation and response. And it's exactly that combination, that balance, that we find in Psalm 95. It is in effect a call to worship this psalmist is saying to us come on let's worship God together let's join together to sing his praises but it's also at the same time a warning from God to us about what real we'll worship means see worship is not just about us about what we do it's about God what God is like and what God expects of us now the uh, Greek Old Testament tells us that it is a psalm of David though in fact the Hebrew version makes no mention David so we don't know who wrote it Uh, most scholars see it as maybe composed for the feast of tabernacles when the people reenacted their time in the wilderness but even though it was written for that context it is just as much a psalm for us today Hebrews 3 the second reading we had makes very clear that the today of the psalm is now the Bible often speaks about today always says do it today that is now it's a word for today the you in the psalm is us you and me speaking very directly to us and the rest that the psalm promises not the physical promised land maybe that they were looking towards but the promise of salvation for us so it's a very relevant psalm for us and i just want to ask a question about what then is this true worship that we're asked to be involved in what does it involve well it involves first of all it involves rejoicing verses one and two come let us sing for joy to the lord Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. In other words, true worship will always involve an element of rejoicing. Rejoicing in what God has done, in who God is, and so on. I think it was a man called Oliver Wendell Holmes who once said, I might have entered the Christian ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted quite so much like undertakers. I take it he meant that they looked miserable. And I think that's the way a lot of people regard worship in church as being miserable, deadly dull, full of people with po faces. And yet, here, worship is a joyful activity. We're to enjoy it. We're to worship with joy. We're to sing for joy. And singing is often an expression of that joy, isn't it? We sing because we're so delighted at what God has done for us and who God is. Now, you see, here the psalm makes clear that this God is worthy of our worship because he is a great god he is the great god he is the king above all gods he is supreme above everything and everyone he is the supreme ruler so when we come to him in worship or in prayer we come to the one who holds all the key to our universe and our world the mountains are his the seas the dry land now even the pagan world can recognize that even the pagan world can see the beauty and the wonder and the order of creation and wants in some way to give praise uh, to it and for it. This is the Roman writer Cicero. When we behold the heavens, when we contemplate the celestial bodies, can we fail of conviction? Must we not acknowledge that there is a divinity, a perfect being, a ruling intelligence which governs, a God who is everywhere and directs all by his power? Well, that's exactly what the psalmist is saying. The Lord is a great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. So that's why we worship with joy, because the one we worship is supreme over all creation. But there is another reason why we can rejoice in worship. And that is because in some way, we human beings were made to worship. It is our most natural activity so we don't worship God simply because he demands it or even because he's worthy of it although these things are absolutely true and right we do so because we are never more human than when we are worshiping it's what we were made for I wonder if you know these words from CS Lewis in his book reflections on the Psalms there's a place in that book where he's pondering why it is that God expects us to worship him he said he wrestled with wondering his god was rather egocentric asking us to worship him and then he came to a realization that actually it's what we're for it's what we're about and when we are most human we are most wanting to worship and he said this i had never noticed before that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite games, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers. I hadn't noticed how the humblest, and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praise the most, while the cranks, the misfits, and the malcontents praised the least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered the new author, And not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in a ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You see, what the psalmist is doing here, when he asks us to join with him in worship, is doing what comes most naturally to him he's not simply praising God he wants others to join with him and somehow his praise of God will be inadequate or imperfect until we have joined him in praising God so you take that's a kind of an example from us from this last summer you remember the Summer Olympics it's an extraordinary month of sport wasn't it and didn't you find yourself saying again and again so one morning, when you went back to work or you met up with other people, you know, did you see Jessica Ennis last night? Or did you see Mo Farah? Or did you see Ellie Simmons? weren't they extraordinary? Wasn't it amazing? You know, the opening ceremony was an extraordinary thing. See, we enjoyed it ourselves; we revelled in it. But somehow, sharing it with other people enhanced that experience. And if we weren't able to talk about it, if we weren't able to share it with others, it wouldn't have been the same. Now, that is true of worship. I suspect many of us would say that some of the most memorable moments of our Christian lives, the times when we felt closest to God, when we've been most aware of what it means to be his child, when we've experienced the deepest joy, have been when we've gathered with others to sing his praises, joining together in worship. True worship will always involve that rejoicing. That's the first thing. But of course it goes beyond that. Because it involves secondly reverence verses 6 and 7 come let us bow down in worship let us kneel before the Lord our maker for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture the flock under his care let us bow down let us kneel worship may be joyful but it also needs to be reverential we need that sense that God is God and that we are not that he is the master he is the king that we're just his servants his flock the people of his pasture the flock under his care there must be that note of reverence and i suspect there is often a sense in which we feel we can saunter into the presence of god when we want how we want yes worship is much more than a duty but it is still a duty yes there should be joy in worship but that doesn't mean that when we don't feel that joy when we don't feel like worshiping That we can somehow take time out you see he is God we are not God and we need to approach him always with reverence and awe. and I think one of the saddest things about our world today is that we've lost any sense of reverence or fear of God people don't fear God anymore they imagine a God who's always loving kind and benevolent and he is loving kind and benevolent he is our God we are his people we are under his care He loves us as a uh, and he tends us as a flock is tended for by a shepherd but that shouldn't make us presume upon him or take him for granted it should make us fall at his feet and bow before him in reverence and submission and honor so the question comes is what part does worship have in our lives and what part is coming together for worship which is what the psalmist is talking about how important is that to us see for some of us it is vital for others if we're honest it isn't we'll do it when we can fit it in when we're not doing something else we treat God as it were as an accessory but here we're told to fear him to treat him with reverence and if he as it were invites us to come and meet with him how can we possibly say no we're to kneel before him we are to bow before him we're to give him praise and honor and respect and the reverence he deserves True worship will always do just that. And I suspect today that too often it doesn't involve that. We've often lost that sense, that element of reverence. One of the greatest teachers of the last century was a man called A.W. Tozer. Not an Anglican, unfortunately, but you can't have everything. But I suppose you'd almost call him a prophet. He spoke many powerful, wise words to that generation. And he once said this about worship It is a delightful thing to worship God. But it is also a humbling thing. And the man who's not been humbled in the presence of God will never be a worshipper of God at all. He may be a church member who keeps the rules and obeys the discipline, who ties and goes to conferences. But he will never be a worshipper unless he is deeply humbled. I wonder if that is our worship. Because if it is not reverential, then we need to heed the last part of the psalm. True worship involves rejoicing, it involves reverence, it involves, lastly, a response. The end of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massar in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. Do you notice how at this moment in the psalm the speaker changes? These verses really should be in quotation marks. It's as though God takes over, And he addresses his people with real urgency and he says this okay you've been bidden to come to worship but I want you to understand this when in worship you hear my voice you make sure you obey it and you make sure you obey it today that's the emphasis today if you hear his voice it's always the Bible's emphasis when we hear God's voice we have to respond to it today because if we don't there are dire consequences See, when we meet together to worship, one of the main reasons, if not the chief reason we should do so, is to hear God's voice. It's not simply to sing his praises, to bow before him, it is to hear him. And hearing in the Bible means not just hearing, but obeying. Apparently Hebrew doesn't really have a suitable word for obey. And it's included in this idea of hearing. When we hear, we obey. Because if we don't obey, then we haven't really heard. And this is the challenge when we hear what god says what do we do with it do we listen and obey or do we ignore him because if we don't listen or obey then two things will happen and the psalmist uses the illustration of the people in the wilderness as a warning to us see if this was a psalm used to recall their time in the wilderness the psalmist wants us to be under no illusions about what that was really like it wasn't all plain sailing wasn't just a time of great blessing it was a time of sadness because the people often rebelled against God. And the psalmist is here referring to that situation when God produced water from the rock. It's recorded in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 at Meribah and Massah. There were times when the people tested God. There were times when the people refused to take God at his word. They engaged in unbelief, the unbelief that the writer of Hebrews spoke of in our second reading. And when they did that, there were two terrible consequences. First, Because they refused to listen to God, their hearts got progressively harder. That always happens. You see, if we don't respond to God today when he speaks to us, tomorrow it is that much harder. And the more we reject God's word, the harder we become, the more deadened. And that will always be the case. So if we are rejecting God's word today, if we are refusing to obey his prompting today, tomorrow our hearts will be harder. And it will be more difficult to respond to him. That's why the Bible always says, do it today. Today is the day of salvation. It's just like people deciding to follow Christ. I'll always remember a very good friend of mine at university. And we talked over these things. And he said to me one day, he said, I'm going to become a Christian. And I said, when? He said, not today. I'll do it tomorrow. And tomorrow has never come. Now he's miles and miles away because the Bible always says, do it today. If God says something of us, we need to respond now. Because the second and more serious consequence is if their hearts go on getting harder and harder and harder, in the end, they will face the judgment and we will face the judgment. Those last two verses are chilling, aren't they? For 40 years, God says, I was angry with that generation. I said there are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways so I declare on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest Those are pretty devastating words aren't they because the people refused to acknowledge him as God as they rebelled against him God says in the end you will never get my blessing that word angry is a very strong word it's a deeply personal word it really means disgusted that God is disgusted when we hear his word and just refuse to obey it it's not that he's losing his temper But there's a sense of outrage in it. How dare God's people treat the eternal God in this way? Because when they do, they will face the prospect of judgment. See, if we go on rejecting God's word, if we go on refusing to obey, one day our hearts will become our hearts will become so hard that we will be rejected forever. And if we find that hard to accept, it's exactly the lesson that the light of the Hebrews draws from these verses. He says make sure make sure your heart doesn't come so hard that actually you fail to enter into what God has promised for you and what does the writer of the Hebrews say is the answer to it well it's fellowship encourage one another every day so that you don't get hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Stir one another up. It's the constant message of the letter to the Hebrews. He's very concerned that people are beginning to fall away and drift away, like the people in the Old Testament did. And so again and again, he says, look, you need one another. You need to help and encourage and stir up one another. So I often meet people who say, look, I am a Christian, but I don't come to church. I don't need to come to church. Well, that is a lie. Well, it may not be church you need to come to, but you need Christian fellowship. No Christian will really survive without Christian fellowship at least if it's there on offer. There may be people and God graciously looks after because they can't experience Christian fellowship. But we can. It's not our excuse. We need one another. We need one another to encourage us, to push us on, to stir us up, to tell us when things are going wrong, to correct us when we're going in the wrong direction. We need that mutual encouragement. So I encourage you. Are you in a situation where people encourage you? Are you in fellowship? Are you able to meet with people who will encourage and help you in your Christian walk? Because if you aren't, there is a great danger of your heart becoming harder and harder. You see, worship of God is a very serious business. Yes, there is rejoicing. There's great joy in worshiping him with others. It's one of the one most wonderful things we can ever experience. There should also be reverence as we bow the knee before him. But that reverence should always lead to a response. It's no no good fearing God if we're not prepared to obey him. So can I just leave us with these two challenges? And the first is this. Are we obeying God, or are we allowing our hearts to become harder and harder? Are we holding out against Him? Or if so, we'll never win. God will always have the last word. Don't harden your heart. And if God has been speaking to you about something and saying, sort this out, do it today before it's too late. But the second thing is it may be difficult to do it on your own. You will need others. Seek fellowship. Come and have a word with me if you want, about a home group or something like that, or come and join one of our courses. Because the answer to the hardness of heart is mutual encouragement. Meeting together, talking together, encouraging one another, praying together, so that we don't become hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Some words from John Piper, one of the great uh, Christian teachers of this century. And I'm going to close with these. If you try to do things for God without delighting in God, you bring dishonour upon him serving god without savoring god is lifeless and unreal at the same time savoring god without serving him is phony and here's the key phrase the test of authentic worship in church is obedience to god outside of church well let's pray that when we hear his voice we don't harden our hearts shall we pray and we'll sing